The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, came forward and put this question to Jesus, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, If someone's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, his brother must take the wife and raise up descendants for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married a woman but died childless. Then the second and the third married her, and likewise all the seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. Now, at the resurrection, whose wife will that woman be? For all seven had been married to her. Jesus said to them, The children of this age marry and remarry, but those who are deemed worthy to attain to the coming age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. They can no longer die, for they are like angels, and they are the children of God, because they are the ones who will rise. That the dead will rise, even Moses made known in the passage about the bush, when he called Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the scribes said in reply, Teacher, you have answered well, and they no longer dared to ask him anything. The Gospel of the Lord. For those of us who have grown up Christian, for those of us who've grown up in this modern world, we forget very easily that the very idea of resurrection was not something that was obvious to the human race, including to the people of God. The Sadducees, those who took care of the temple at the time of Jesus, did not have belief in the resurrection of the dead. And so in Israel itself, there are multiple opinions, multiple understandings, and great confusion over the question of what happens when we die. And that is the issue around which our gospel reading turns today. The Sadducees come and they propose this ridiculous example to Jesus because they found the very idea of resurrection from the dead to be a ridiculous thing. And so they pose it to the Lord, this example which is, highlights the absurdity of certain ways of thinking about the resurrection. And note that the Lord, in his answer, doesn't play the game because he highlights a fundamental mistake that is still made today. We assume that in the resurrection, everything is just like it is now, only better. 
and note what the Lord says. Don't make that mistake. Don't assume that every aspect of life as you know and experience it in the glory of the kingdom is going to be identical to what you have now, just glorified up to 11. Rather, there is something fundamentally different about that life. It will still be you. But the glory that waits us is not identical to everything we experience here. And this is important because otherwise what happens is we tend to think reductively. We reduce everything to the familiar, to things that we already know. But God is beyond all of that. And the life and the greatness and the happiness that the Lord holds out to us is beyond even our most exalted conception of happiness and goodness. And so when we want to reduce things to what we think we already know, spiritually, in fact, we're settling not even for second best, but maybe for fourth best or fifth best. And the Lord has more in store for us. How important that is. Because our readings today, this gospel reading and our first reading, where we have the example of King Antiochus, whom we've been hearing about for the last week and a half, and the struggle of Israel against his oppressive rule, both turn on that issue of, when my life comes to an end, what waits for me? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then life simply comes to an end. And the only kind of continuity we look for is the continuity of the family, the continuity of the people, and the hope that we would be remembered and not forgotten. But let's be honest. If you're dead and there's nothing else left, what difference does it make to you whether you're remembered or not? <laughs> and so note, part of it is the fear and the recognition that if there is nothing left, nothing waiting for me beyond, then everything I do, everything I build, in the end comes to nothing. And it becomes a stretch to say that my life has meaning and value. And that was a real struggle for those in the ancient world. This is why you would see, for example, in the great burial tombs of Egypt, Pharaoh is buried with everything he acquired, as if somehow that all goes with him. But why? It's the hope, that desperate hope, that something about the life that I've been living endures. And it's symbolized by this desire to be buried with my possessions, this desire to be buried with everything I've accumulated. And yet, there's always that knowledge in the heart that I really can't take any of that with me.
But note how the Lord answers that question of the Sadducees. You're phrasing this as if we get to take everything with us. When the real answer is, as Job so beautifully said, naked I came into the world, and naked I go out of the world. And all that I've accumulated in this world, materially, is left behind. I move forward with the goodness of the life I've lived or the wickedness of the life I've lived. This is what King Antiochus is suddenly facing. In a foreign land, in the middle of a failure, he suddenly turns and realizes He's not simply at the end of his life, but that end is unpleasant. And it's unpleasant because of the wrong that he had done. And curiously, apparently, as the scripture points out, unthinkingly did. Notice what happens. The king says to himself, I was a good guy. I was a generous ruler. Oh, yeah, I did kill all those people. <laughs> he speaks with that way that we can all fool ourselves. Those who live wicked lives rarely ever understand or think of themselves as being wicked. We think of ourselves as good. I'm just trying to be good. I'm just trying to get ahead. I'm not all that bad. And so note what he does. He does what we hear people doing through all generations and across all centuries and all cultures. Well, you know, I really love my family. I'm really responsible at work. We take one or two things that we're getting right, and we assume that makes me good. And it becomes very easy then to overlook all the other things that we're doing wrong. Those ways we hurt others unthinkingly, those ways we hurt others at times deliberately. But when we look at ourselves, we tell the story. I'm really a generous ruler. My people love me, except for the ones I killed. Note how easily that can just live in the heart. And so here it is at the end of his life where a certain honesty is forced upon him. I'm not as good as I believed I was. I'm not the hero I made myself out to be. And he doesn't know what to do with that. because he has no hope in the God who can save him. Note how important our faith in the resurrection really is. Note how important this victory of Jesus risen from the dead is. Because in the end, in the end, that moment that King Antiochus goes through waits for all of us. When at a certain point, the totality of our life 
is going to be before us. And we pray for the grace of being able to take an honest look as opposed to a self-deceiving look. In fact, this is why the skill of learning how to make a good examination of conscience is so important to master before we get to that moment so that we can correct those ways we deceive ourselves, so that we can correct those ways we go off course, so that at the end we hopefully can say, at least I've made some progress. At least I've been trying to turn and head in the right direction. As opposed to at that final moment saying, oh my God, I've been walking the wrong way all this time. And I refused to see it, refused to recognize it. What a curious combination of readings. This look to the end of life. But that begs the question then of how does the Christian look to the end of life? And he looks first to the mercy of Jesus Christ, giving himself on the cross. The mercy of Jesus dying a sinner's death on behalf of us sinners who by our wickedness deserve it. But note, note what Antiochus says. I'm getting the death I deserve for the wrong I've done. But he says that without hope. He says that without any call for forgiveness. He says that because he only knows half the story. He's exactly right. He's getting what he's, he's actually getting better than he deserves. But that could be us too. That is fallen man, sinful man, that is man who unthinkingly hurts so many, including himself. That is what we merit. But Jesus receives it. Jesus undergoes it on our behalf. And having undergone it, he rises. And that humanity that he took upon himself that humanity in which he died on the cross is the humanity that rises from the tomb on Easter Sunday morning. Yes, we are sinners, but he is merciful. And note how beautiful that is. Sinful man rises from the tomb in Jesus. And that same humanity is the humanity that Jesus takes with him as he ascends to heaven. And that humanity is enthroned at the side of God. How does the Christian then look forward? He looks at that great mercy, that saving mercy, and that absolutely glorious transformation from that one disfigured and wound it, broken, rejected, a laughing stock on the cross. And the Lord shows us the face of what all of our wrong 
done. And then in his resurrection, he shows us the glorious transformation that awaits. How absolutely marvelous that we might learn to look there with confidence. We believe the resurrection, we say, but we think so little of it if we're honest. And yet nothing is more important than this, the victory of Jesus Christ over death, which says we look for more than just the fact that life comes to an end. And we look for more than just more of the same of what we already know. We look for something greater, something glorious, something wondrous. A life, as the Lord says, which has a certain aspect of the angelic about it. What a remarkable promise that is. What a remarkable cause for hope. And who should have such hope? We sinners. We are the ones who should have that hope. And so it is that in just a couple minutes, when we come forward, what we do here is no mere symbolic gesture. We stretch out our hands to Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. In a sense, then, you stretch out your hand to grasp the resurrection as often as you receive him in this great sacrament. What a marvelous way to describe the very essence of Christian life in a certain sense. The true Christian is the one who stretches out his hand to the resurrection. It's something we receive, something we are given, and something our faith insists we must hold on to and not let go lightly. It's so easy in this world, sin-fallen, wounded, so given to fear and despair, to let that hope get snatched out of our hands. That's why we do this every day. We come here to this altar and we stretch out our hands to that saving victory, to that victorious one, and we receive the fullness of him who, loving us, died for us and rose for us. And he gives us that mystery as often as we gather here. Poor Antiochus, who had everything the world could offer, and dies alone and empty-handed, not knowing where to reach. But we are not him. We know where to turn. We know where to reach. And we know that it doesn't matter whether we have anything that the world offers. So much as we have that one, that saving one, who offers himself to us. Let us receive him then with great gratitude and with joy, and let us found our hopes on his presence. Amen.